0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope you're fitting well and happy. You're on Reality Check Radio, so you should be. And you're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we've got a great show today. We have got Sue Kuiti. I've known Sue for a long, long time because, as as we'll probably discuss, she came to me as an MP. and it's an illustrative story of what's happening here in New Zealand and around the world, uh, the exception being that Sue's prepared to speak up and is very articulate and very knowledgeable. And it's this. Everywhere you look, small businesses, family businesses, are being squeezed. And they're being squeezed by governments and corporates, and governments by regulation, and sometimes just tipping the playing field in favor of big corporates. And it's changing our society dramatically and changing who we are. Instead of working for ourselves, we're working for someone else. Instead of dealing with the fellow from the sports day or our church group or the school group, we're dealing with a faceless corporate who we don't even know who runs it or owns it. Big change. She's going to be explaining a microcosm of the big picture. It's a wonderful story. It'll be a wonderful story. And then we have got Philippa Payne. Wow. I've just started to look into this. How can we get so sucked in? I had a... I had thought that John Keeg was telling the truth when he so said all these Kiwis that are in these detention centres in Australia are sort of murderers, rapists and wife beaters and horrible, horrible people. Well, I've learnt something different
1: and I learned once again. You can't trust
0: those in power to be telling us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Philippa, you're going you're gonna to have a good, uh, good, challenging interview with her. If you disagree, if you've got more to add, if you just want to say, hey, that was a great interview, or, oh, that was terrible, send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio, or send me a text, 2057, and understand this. I love every text, I love every email, and we're striving to get better. We're striving to improve the shows because we know what really, Chick Radio means to you, to your family, to your loved ones, and to this country, and to our future. Thank you so much. Stay tuned. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
3: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
2: Thanks
0: for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with
3: us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox
0: at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in
3: touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde.
0: Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Ah, this is a lady, how do I say this without sounding rude, from my past? Um, and she'll tell the story. We go back a long way, but I haven't seen her in the interim. And through the radio, she's reached out to me, and i have I've put her on the show because she's got an important story to tell us because one of the things that's happening, not just in New Zealand, but around the Western world, is the utter destruction of small business. and. It breaks my heart, and I think it's changing the trajectory of our society in that more and more of us are working for someone else, someone else we often don't know, never see, some corporate, and less and less of us are independent, working for ourselves. And you know what it's like when you go into a big corporate with a genuine complaint, you just sort of shuffled around and you know what it's like to be in your neighborhood and the local business owner is the person you see on the sideline of the soccer or rugby or that the school does. And you just have that connection. And that destruction of small business seems to me to be di- driven by government policy as particularly the regulatory costs pile on small business and corporates can offload it across a larger number of customers. But, you know, you're seeing the death of law, neighbourhood lawyers, everything, every business that you can imagine. And so I have an interest and a concern about this. And, well, let's go through the story. This, This lady is called Sue Kuiti. Good morning, Sue.
2: Good morning, Rodney. How nice
0: to see you, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I I don't know what I can say these days, but this is a genuine thing, and I don't want to sound rude, but you and your husband came to me, I guess I met you 20 years ago, Hmm. and I haven't seen you since, and you were such a fine couple. And I mean that in every sense of the word. And I'm not just focusing on appearance, but your husband is very, very handsome. You were very beautiful. You (laughs) You were very beautiful. You're very
2: kind.
0: (laughs) No, I'm being very genuine about this because we do judge books by their cover. And then the two of you were so remarkably genuine kind and intelligent and it was such a wonderful thing and to be honest the audience don't have this benefit but i can see you on zoom and i haven't seen you for 20 years my god you haven't changed you well, really, I can say
2: exact, I, I did exactly the same to you, but yeah. that is super kind. It must be no. something.
0: And, and it's, and it's, it's I, you know, beauty is a funny thing, isn't it? Because it comes ultimately from within. Because you can have people that superficially look pretty, but if they don't have a good heart, they're not beautiful. You know, they can be oh, pretty
2: I, I, beautiful. I, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Yes. You and come from
0: and you. because I messed up my times, I ended up speaking to your husband, Mike. And he's he's just they're not – you yeah, actually, with good friends, you go back 20 years and you can pick it up and it's just like you've never not spoken, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just natural, now, isn't this it?
0: This is a great story, don't you think? Oh, it's a terrible story for you. But isn't it a great story of small family businesses up against large global corporates and government policy? You are a a perfect example of that, would you say? Uh, Well,
2: yes, we've always been the... David and Goliath battle, haven't we? So that's how you and I met originally. And sadly, over the years, nothing has changed in our industry, which is obviously the only industry I can comment on,
0: So Um, and and got worse,
2: which is sad.
0: Yeah. So tell us about your business and tell us how you got into it because it's one of those businesses that not many of us would think about And I have to say, every now and then, I need to go into a business just like yours. And I always uh, think about you and think about Uh the logic of your situation. So tell us about your business, but also tell us how you ended up in that business.
2: Well, our business is just a small family auto glazing business. So we um, supply and fit replace damaged windscreens, repair windscreens, any body glass of have sadly been broken into or, or something like that so it's a small family auto glazing business uh, we got into it in 1999 actually when we returned from the UK where my husband played a number of years.
0: he's so a your hu- husband your husband will just pause it there uh just just pause so how did you get into this business
2: uh, we returned from the United Kingdom, where my husband played sport for a number of years back in 1999. Oh, was and he a
0: professional sports player?
2: He played rugby league, yes. So like for, for, New for a living, for a living, yes, he played for the New Zealand Kiwis and uh, also played overseas in the UK for oh, about 12 years. We were over there, so.
0: Well, that's um, a tough, tough sport.
2: Tough sport, and yeah. to be
0: playing at that level. Man, yeah. oh, man.
2: It was it was nice. It was back before all the professionalism came in. So although technically it's professional to play for a living, it was before the Super League and all those sorts of things. But really, did you nice. you love it? And, uh, yeah, did love it. Yeah, yeah. And Two did, of our and, three children were born over there, and yeah, lots of good friends.
0: And were you like what do they call them? You were like a wag. No, I was never a wag. But what does a wag there. stand for?
2: Yeah. Um.
1: Woman, woman,
2: uh, oh, wives, what? Oh, I don't know, wives, something.
0: Yeah, can't remember.
2: I don't know. That was more a football thing. So yeah, yeah. but you were (laughs)
0: like a because you would go wives and girlfriends, wives and
2: girlfriends, wives and girlfriends. Yeah, that's
0: it. I guess when they organize the tour and the trips, they have a slot and it's wives and girlfriends and someone's managing them and stopping them from suing each other. So you were a a wife and girlfriend going from game to game.
2: Yes. Yeah. How wonderful. And did
0: you watch your husband play?
2: Oh, all the time. Yeah. Every game. Did you worry?
0: Did you worry for him?
2: Um well yeah, it's it's tough. So um and certainly back then there wasn't all the knowledge of uh head injuries and things like that. So uh yeah, it was a pretty pretty rough and tough, but oh, he could look after himself. So yeah, there's always that little underlight, you know, if you saw them laying on the ground for any period of time thinking, Oh my goodness, but uh yeah, he, he was pretty lucky, didn't really uh, sustain uh, the injuries well, that over there.
0: That explains why he looked like a Greek god and you like a Greek goddess on earth (laughs) because you were like professional athletes and a male professional athlete gets the best-looking, nicest girls, right? Oh, good for him.
2: Oh, well, I didn't know that. We'll go
0: with it. I didn't know that. And what's it like as the career starts to end for your husband? Is it sad? Well, uh,
2: well, yeah, I think there's a certain sadness as it it comes to an end, but fortunately he was very realistic. So you know it's coming to an end and the yeah. body's sort of been bashed around for a bit and, and starting to get a bit sore. But we we do know a lot of a lot of friends that really struggled through that retirement um time. Um, yeah I think he was a little bit sad. I was a little bit sad, but uh we we were looking forward to coming back to New Zealand and bringing up our children back here. So right.
0: So you it came was a nice back,
2: transition.
0: You came back to New Zealand and you thought, ah, what do we do now?
2: Well, yeah, well, Mike's a builder by trade, so he always had that trade to fall back on. And he did go and worked for a company building when we first got back to New Zealand. But we always wanted to have something that was ours. And it was really just an advert in the newspaper for um, a, a franchised auto glazing business. That caught our eye and, oh, well, you know, we can do that. And that was how it all started.
0: And when you say it was a franchise, was it up and running in Wellington or did you have to set it up?
2: No, they had no operator in Wellington, so we got it up and running. And Mike also trained other technicians around the country in the same franchise. We did end up getting out of that franchise. It sort of collapsed a little bit. Okay. Yeah, and we we ended up just rebranding and, and coming out of that. And our current business is just our own.
0: I can't imagine it. So how do you you think, oh, I'm gonna put um windscreens in cars. And like I can imagine Googling it on YouTube and learning something about and getting the relevant tools so you can lift the thing around. But you've got to get all the computers, the invoicing, the factory and you think how big do I need oh our office how did you figure all that out right at the start when you've got no money coming in
2: well I was I was working but also uh we decided to not have the big workshop and things like that we decided that a mobile business was the best option yeah, well, and from the customer's perspective, is it easier for us to come to you or is it yeah. easier for you to drop your vehicle off and be without it for a whole day? So we decided on the mobile option, which is what we do, Less set-up costs, obviously. Yes. You just need a van and, and your equipment. And there's quite a bit of training involved. A lot of people think it's cut out a windscreen, shove in a new one. It's a no. lot more technical than that. Um, but, yeah, he he went to Auckland for some some training and then we were just left to get on with it really so I ran the office from home had a whole home office and um and he was out and about doing the work so it, it was a nice fit
0: and how did you get your first customers because that would be my worry like you got to get that first customer and you're thinking have you done this before nope you're my first
2: (laughs) never say no Uh, (laughs) fake it till you make it (laughs) but yeah a lot of uh a lot of just cold calling um from us both mike and myself just going in and introducing ourselves and giving out a business card and um and that would be
0: to a garage or who would you be giving your card out to
2: Anyone and everyone, service departments, vehicle dealerships, um, little Warner fitness testing stations, panel beaters. There's a lot of work that's just removing and refitting a windscreen for panel work, so um, panel beaters. And back then, of course, the yellow pages was a big thing. So mm-hmm. um, uh, and add in the yellow pages just for the Joe public customer calls and, you know, proudly... Uh, the commercial clients that we got way back then are still our commercial clients now, over 20 years later. So, um, well,
0: I had a windscreen. I've had two windscreens go in recent times. I'm living down in uh, Arrowtown, and the guy that fixed it said, Oh, well, you'll be back in less than six months because apparently it's quite a thing down here. And uh, I did have another one go. But it's a big deal because. This guy didn't fit it right. Uh-oh. And the, it was an older car, and the little wee slot kept slipping around, and I'd keep adjusting it. And then one day, I lost the trim. And I had a devil of a time. And this was like three months, six months later. I had a devil of time. First, I went looking for the trim, where I might have lost it. Couldn't find it. Then I had to go around, was it, you know, secondhand, no, with car dumps. And to find that bit of trimmer, I had a devil of a time to put that trim back on myself. And um, it irritated the hell out of me because he just didn't do it right. And you don't know that necessarily when you drive off from the windscreen replacement place that it's not been properly sealed or properly fixed.
2: This is um, yeah, part of our argument, and people don't realise how important a safety feature a windscreen is, yes. either. I mean, it's a really, uh, after seat belts and brakes, um, it's a really important safety feature because it's the structural integrity of your vehicle. So if they're not fitted correctly um, and you are unfortunate enough to be involved in a, a serious car accident, they can pop out. And if they pop out, of course, you be injected outside the vehicle, or if you roll over and it pops out, the top of your car can crush in. So
0: oh wow, I didn't feature. know that. Yeah, so well they, they're
2: holding up the front of your vehicle from from collapsing in I a never roll-over knew that. accident. Yeah, well, most people and, and why would you? Most people don't realize, but they are an important safety feature. And that's why we get very frustrated when um. Customers are, are steered around the place to certain workers well, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm who... A, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, talking to you, Sue, but...
2: You're going to say place, bad words.
0: Yes. The place I went to was of a South African... Uh, oh, nature. dear.
2: Mm. And and you had problems.
0: Bloody big Here we go. <laughs> and I thought of you, and I thought, well... That's why she told me all those years she ago. She did. <laughs> and, oh, my God. I yeah, never thought of. I mean, I just thought of them not being it fitted properly and it being a nuisance because bits drop off. I never ever thought. Ah, go to heck now. So now you have a shop, or are you still still mobile?
2: No, completely mobile.
0: Isn't that cool? So if I had my uh, windscreen go, well, you could just pop over to my place. You'd have the windscreen and you'd pop the old one out and the new one in, and on I'd go.
2: That's right. We'd give you a written guarantee for the lifetime of the screen, and we'd be happily on our way.
0: And you'd do it quite quick.
2: Uh, yeah, that's uh, our service standards. We try to be same day, following day, if um, you know parts dependent, of course. Sometimes you do have to get a part in from from somewhere else, but we try to be same day, following day.
0: Goodness me! Now let's walk through. Going back to how did I meet you, Sue?
2: We met you when you were in Parliament, Rodney, because we were having uh, issues within our industry with our with the insurance. Company. So you did so
0: come to see me.
2: I did come to see you in your office there. Yes, I did.
0: Ah, because I was wondering whether you came to me because we were having the inquiry. But did we make an inquiry off your case?
2: You made the inquiry happen. So we ended up at that select committee. Probably well, I'm, select quite, committee.
0: I'm quite something then.
2: You are quite something because I, nobody else would pay any attention. That's, nobody yeah. sort of seems to care about the little guy, which is, which is sad. Well, and, I and always,
0: I, well, apart from the fact that you and your husband were gorgeous and fun, but I always had that feeling that, People that are working and making a living should have our 100% support. And I don't really? un- understand it, that people don't care about this. And I do. I, I was trying to remember. Um, by the way, listeners, Sue reached out to me through the radio station, and uh, which is doubly delightful that she's a keen listener. And um, as we say, one of us. Ah, uh, but we don't say that necessarily too loudly, but you are, and I think proudly so, right?
2: Absolutely, very of proudly, us, and, you, and you can say it as loud as you like.
0: You're yes. a river of filth-a.
2: I am a river of
0: filth <laughs> <But laughs> Yes, I, guess, I am,
2: and I'm very proud to say it.
0: And you got to go home every night and sleep I in a did. warm bed.
2: I did, but I, I spent a, a lot of time um, on Parliament grounds, uh, just for you. talking to all the wonderful people there and and feeling very sad to leave them and go home and then listen in the evenings to how uh, we were being talked about to the public uh, and around the country and the misconception that everybody ended up with about how disgusting those uh those lovely people were and the destruction that was being done to sacred parliament grounds and the cenotaph. And and the reality was completely the opposite.
0: An absolute shameful period of New Zealand's history.
2: Oh, absolutely! Completely shameful. I took videos and and everything to to show mm. people what it was actually like, and the the care that those people took of the grounds, and the steps that they went to, the rubbish collection that was in there every day, the straw that was put down to try and protect the grounds. At uh, least not forget who it was that caused all the mud and the Jeez. issues uh, in there. But it it, it, it broke my heart hearing what people were saying about those good honest professional people for the most part and let's not forget the most of them were vaccinated yes um and and to be called anti-vaxxers and and all the horrible things that were said had absolutely nothing to do with why people were there and a complete distraction and i was ashamed to 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 be a new zealander at that mm. time and, and um
0: i'm i'm ashamed to have had anything to do with Parliament or indeed the ACT Party. I am ashamed of it because... Well,
2: it, it, all they all, all we wanted, and I say we, I, I didn't have to camp out there, of course, yeah. because I could come home at the end of the day, but um, all, all that we wanted was for somebody to come down and talk. And when have we ever had a protest in New Zealand, ever, where Never. MPs did not come down and address...
0: We'd go people. down and talk to the Mongol mob if they camped out.
2: We're the people. You know, they, they I, I think MPs forgot who they work for. That they, they are there to serve. And another thing which I am deeply saddened um, was the behaviour of the New Zealand police.
0: I was about to say, the New Zealand police, I have been watching the clips. I haven't sat down and lo- watched the whole thing, but the clips of the movie. What's it? We Came Here for Freedom? Is that, I got the title right?
2: Uh, yes, I think you have. Yeah. And
0: you see the police and you think that is disgusting.
2: It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, and, and yeah, I, I've been. I older, have always,
0: and- I've always been such a supporter of the police. I know they get it wrong. And I know the hierarchy are very political. But the behaviour of the New Zealand police was contemptible. It wasn't just the big bosses because the individual officers were bad and the individual officers that weren't doing something bad were watching on while others did and didn't stop it. I will never, ever put my faith or trust in the New Zealand police again.
2: Uh, Yeah, I was... um, was Devastated, devastated by that. Have always had the utmost respect yes. um, for police, and, and have police members in in our family who were not there that day. But um, you yeah, always had the utmost respect. But uh, after after that time, just it, it was and, why why would why would we call the riot squad in?
1: Yes, and there's and no, no riot.
2: <laughs> no one's rioting. Everyone's, you know, most part asleep still you know planned it that way um and yeah
1: it we was got so off track harper. but then
0: the other one is i understand that the media are biased and have a bias and they exhibit their bias by what they write about what they leave in how they word it how they construct the sentence so you almost become uh you almost have your views on the world assigned to you by Journalists, because they're telling you what's happening. But I never thought
1: that an individual journalist would lie. And I
0: never could imagine that the entire media would lie in unison. But they were lying about that protest every day. Every Follow the day. money.
2: Follow the Follow money. Follow the money.
0: But, like, you wouldn't even think that you would – uh, my friend of mine used to say cynically, he says it never, I'm never surprised, he was a lawyer, so he was a bit, what's the word, didn't have the ethical values that you and I would share.
2: <laughs> if I That's not it, very generalized at <laughs>
0: all. <laughs> if I can put it politely. But he said it never surprised him that people sold out for money. What always surprised me is how cheap they are. And that was my conclusion of the New Zealand journalist. So good for you. You're one of us. Now, go back and you came to see me. And what was the issue?
2: The issue at, uh, at that time was the steering, and they call it steering, um, of insurance companies steering their auto glass clients to a particular repairer based on preferred repairer agreements. So, uh insurers would argue that uh, that preferred repairer agreements are in the best interests of the customer and not based on pricing, but that's absolutely not true whatsoever. So we we never had an issue with a preferred repairer agreement per se. The issue we had was uh the misleading um clients into believing they could only use. That's right, that's
0: right. It comes back to me now. So what would happen is I would break my windscreen. I would ring my insurer, which in my case is AA, and they would say, yes, you can get it fixed at Novus there in Frankton, which were the people that buggered it up for me and still not right. And now I think it's not safe. So there's a double whammy. And I would say, oh, great. And off I would go. But there were half a dozen other windscreen repairing places that I could go to who might do a better job, might even do it competitively. But of course, I don't care because it's an insurance job. And I would never get to know. So there was a, an agreement in place. I think it was Novus, right? Smith and & Smith. Smith and & Smith. That's right. Smith and & Smith. And they're a South African company? They right? are
2: owned, yeah, by Belrom, which is a huge South African company.
0: And they're around the world? Yes, around the world. Smith & Smith. So what's Novus? Are they part of the same thing?
2: Well, no. Novus are a franchise. Um, okay. They're, yeah, their head franchisor is in New Zealand. Okay. Um, but they've sort of become two heads of the same beast at the moment. So um, okay. between the two of them, they they sort of battle it out for.
0: Well, it was no insurance work. buggered up my windscreen. So uh-huh. they would steer me, and that's a good word. They you, the insurers would steer you to Smith and Smith, and as a customer, you're indifferent because you got you know no better, and you actually got no ability to assess whether the job's any good or not because you drive out and the windscreen's in, you think it's okay. But what you're saying is not necessarily. And so your problem was you couldn't get that work.
2: Well, and it could be even worse. You could um, you could contact us to get your windscreen repaired, and we say, sure, we'll do that for you. Um, ring your insurance company, lodge a claim, and then we can invoice your insurance company direct. So then you go away and think, this is great, they're going to come out to me, you ring your insurance company and your insurance company say, oh, they're not one of our pursued repairers, we would like you to go here. And you go, oh, okay, well, I didn't know that and I don't want to upset my insurance company, so I'll just go and you tell me to. So the work came to us originally and then it gets taken away when the insurance company step in. And they use, their call centre tactics, use lots of, Different ways of steering you away from us, even if you've come to us in the first place. Say you won't get a guarantee. They say that we're not a preferred repairer, so they'll have to have an assessor come out and make sure we've done it properly. They say we're not our health and safety methods haven't been tested. So any number of ways that they then um, encourage. They yeah, insured to go somewhere
0: different. And you and I, I think we're agreed on this, are all in favor of competition. You can't be a sports person and not favor competition because that's how everything gets better. Everything yes, gets course. better with, with competition. With sport, yes. But what we have here is not competition, but the use of government regulations, the way government operates. And then you actually have a potential collusion between two companies looking after each other.
2: Well, this is the anti-competitive behaviour that we uh, uh, raised with you initially, where you very kindly got us in front of a select committee, um, which was great. And the select committee was great, and the company in question actually was fined after that for misleading customers. Yes, but that was so walk a Walk me through,
0: walk me through. Because I, look, it was 20 years ago and yes. um, I had a few inquiries and of course it was everything to you, but just another day for me. In many senses, apart from the fact that you were wonderful. Well, that's um,
2: hurtful, but I can see how that can happen. Yeah,
0: yeah. so. Oh, well,
2: it ended up being a fine under the Fair Trading Act.
0: But just let me get this right. So I wrote a letter to the Commerce Committee outlining the case, and the committee chair, I'm thinking it was Mark Peck from India It Cary. was Mark Peck. Well, he was a wonderful, wonderful MP. He was a Labour MP, and he was always offside with Helen Clark, and he had a quite a choice phrase to describe the cabal around Helen Clark that ran the place. But he, he was not of the right mm, disposition to quite fit in and get elevated and he'd come to realize that but he was a, and made him a better MP rather than if you like tribal labor and i remember him saying no this doesn't look right let's look into this so we had you along to the committee and you could explain what was happening to you correct
2: yes and we had also some witnesses with us who were insurance customers who had been on the receiving end of the, of steering. the steering. So, um,
0: And the officials had to sit there and listen. And did we hear from Smith & Smith, that committee?
2: I don't believe that they wanted to um,
0: okay. have anybody
2: come. We had Paula Rebstock, remember?
0: Yes. Oh, yes, because she was in charge of the Commerce Commission.
2: That's right. As, she,
0: as I recall, she was useless.
2: Oh, absolutely. Not oh, yeah. remotely <laughs> interested. Not <laughs> remotely interested at all. but, but, but <laughs> At but least I end- got that right. <laughs> it did end up being um, a fine for... No, just, for um,
0: I'm murderer. still working up to the fine. I love the fine bit because that... So Smith & Smith would clearly have been invited along. I guarantee the insurance companies would have been written to and invited along because it's a bit like... It's the highest court in a way in the land. This is why I want... The inquiry into vaccine injuries in front of a select committee because it can step outside the bureaucracy, and MPs are more sensible uh, than these Paula Rebstocks of the world because they just go along with the uh, big end of town. So the Commerce Commission wasn't remotely interested, or the Ministry of Commerce, I can't remember which was, but I distinctly remember that they had they had no care for. No a married couple working away in their business,
1: having customers stolen off them.
0: There's no other word for it. They had no care for that. It was like so hurtful. Anyway, they would have all been invited to come along. The insurance companies is coming back to me, and Smith & Smith refused to come because they couldn't answer the questions. Oh. You had witnesses. This is what happened to me when I rang and I was going to go to Supreme Windscreens, if I got that Supreme right? Supreme Screens. Supreme yep. Screens. And I got told, no, they're not a preferred supplier. They've got health and safety issues. You go to this crowd. And they were directed away from you.
2: What IAG were doing at the time, and specifically state insurance, people, a lot of people don't realise that IAG is this massive Beast of you know state insurance and AMI insurance and they, they all come under the same banner. But what they were actually doing was refusing their customers' right to choose, even though their um, policy, their advertising and their policy documents stated that you could choose. So and that's we,
0: what the committee concluded, I think.
2: And that's where the fine came from, and that was yes. a Fair Trading Act that it was yes. misleading advertising. Yes. It really, it, was, it wasn't that they cared about the fact that, you know, small businesses were, were getting shafted left, right and centre. And let's not forget that this is just my little Wellington um, independent business. We're all over the country. There's, you know, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of us around the country that the same thing is is happening to. Um, so that was the reason for the fine, was the advertising said, choose your own repairer and the reality was, no, you can't choose your own repairer. So,
0: how wonderful! And the so what happened from that com- committee was we wrote the report pointing this out, and then presumably, the Ministry of Commerce uh, looked into it and prosecuted who? IAG, the, the insurer. And how much did they find them?
2: I think it was something minimal, about two hundred and ninety thousand dollars, or something when you make billions of dollars a year in profit was um was nothing really but
0: but it was a if you it like, was
2: it was a message.
0: A message. Did you suffer a consequence for speaking out?
2: Oh probably. Um yeah probably I'm sure that when my name comes up in insurance company emails it's got a big you know big flashing red light. Um but it's it's the principle, isn't it Rodney? Well,
1: because if you don't... if you've just
2: if you got don't, to put yourself out there and say, yeah. no, it's not acceptable.
0: Yeah, and if you don't stand up on your principles, you're no one. Exactly. I, I don't understand it. Like, you either have values and principles or you don't. Right. And um, if I'm not standing on a principle of value, I actually have to go to me and explain it to the person. Why? Because, That's right. And, and um,
2: sometimes, yeah, and you, you can't rely on on others to do it for you and just no. sit back in the background and think, oh, well, I'll let, you know, I'll let them take all the flack. And, and you know, you, you've got to stand up for what's right. And that's the way it's always been for me. Well, you know?
0: I'm quite, I'm quite proud of myself. Isn't that something? You should um, be proud
2: of yourself. <laughs> it's sad that I didn't get you I... on.
0: I didn't get you on because I was thinking, oh, I vaguely remember this. I remember you. I'm sort of trying to think through the story. There was an inquiry. How did that inquiry come about? What did it conclude? What happened? And actually, at that point, we would have been slapping ourselves on the back, thinking that we had achieved something.
2: And and I think we did. And, you know, for a while, it sort of eased up and it became easier to get our invoices paid and, and do the work and just the preferred repairer agreements have never stopped they yeah. they are always there and like we've said it's a competitive industry and we would just like to be on the same level playing yeah. field yeah if we if we can compete on the quality of our service and the politeness of our staff and and you know the the good job that we do our efficiency and be competitively priced well that's that's not a problem but when you're all of those things, and have a huge company effectively just wanting to stomp on you, um, and it's no secret that the big insurance companies hate us. They hate independent. Operators.
0: They hate you.
2: They hate us. They they actually call us leakage. And I I had one of the bosses at IAG tell me that that's what they they call us leakage because we seep out the edge of their preferred repairer operators and
0: And they they don't like us. And also you can show them up.
2: Well, our service standards, if we're going to choose a repairer based on service standards, ours are head and shoulders above. The, the nominated preferred repairers and we have to work extra hard because we don't get that work continuously handed to us on a plate by insurance companies we have to work for it and we have to do a better job so that those customers come back to us again next time so it's and also your time.
0: staff your staff and this is why i love small business and this is why Um, We have to work so assiduously hard to protect it because your staff are working alongside you.
2: Yes, we're a team.
0: Yes, whereas you go and work for Smith & Smith and you're working for someone who's employed, who's working for someone who's employed, who's working for someone who's employed, who's working for someone who's employed, and on and on it goes. And then you get up, to the chief executive who's sitting there working for a board who have nothing knowledge particularly of the business and then you have shareholders who are institutional investors who have no particular stake in whether Mrs Brown gets her windscreen put in safely other than they could get sued or fined. I mean, that little, those small little businesses are, are a wonder to behold. And we should work our butts off to preserve them at every opportunity. And here we are. And of course, you are just one example.
2: Yes, that's
0: what I mean. Of of, of an industry. No, you just, your industry is one example. Yes. Of what's happening in the world to the local. Businesses that used to service us, and of and course, what
2: insurers insurers don't seem to appreciate is if they make it so hard for little local businesses to do this insurance work, and probably eighty five to ninety percent of auto glazing work is insurance. So if if they make it so difficult for us that, you know, we end up just thinking, well, let's just slag it. We just don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. What do they think will happen to the pricing structure? That's right. And it's left with those two giants to manipulate. I mean, you see it in the petrol industry, the supermarket yes. industry.
4: Yes.
2: Um, what do they think will happen? Because certainly it won't be going down. Mm. Um, and and we keep those big guys Honest, and our service standards are uh, head and shoulders above. But it is sad that you and I are still having this conversation. Yes, yeah, so years eight, tell because me. Because actually what's, now it's worse.
0: Tell so, me how, how it operates now.
2: Well, what happened about three years ago or three and a half years ago is IAG introduced a third party administrator who would deal with the payment of their invoices for autoglass claims for independent operators only. So the preferred repairers don't have to go through this separate process. They, their invoices go directly to the insurer. But the insurer brought on this third-party administrator to take care of all the invoicing for independent operators. The is called Autoglass Claims New Zealand. So Autoglass Claims New Zealand, we have to send our invoices to. Uh, Technically, we're supposed to ask their permission whether our pricing is acceptable, and and then we can go ahead and do the job, send the invoice to them, and Autoglass Claims pay the invoice. So all information about every job has to be Outlined on those invoices, which is all of our commercially sensitive information, our pricing structure, um, everything has to be broken down. The labour cost, how many technicians, the price of the part, any margin on the part has to be broken down before that invoice will be paid, which we don't have any issue with if that was an independent company or the insurer themselves. I'm happy to provide any of that information. But Autoglass Claims New Zealand, as it is is owned by the directors of Novus New Zealand. So they are our biggest competitor. So we are oh asked to...
0: my God.
2: We are asked to provide all of our commercially sensitive information to our biggest competitor. And they decide whether our pricing is fair and reasonable, and if they don't consider it fair and reasonable, they send it back to the repairer and tell them what the price should be um, to be changed so that the invoice is paid.
0: Do they pretend to have a Chinese wall between the two companies?
2: They do pretend. I don't know what the insurer thought that we're you know, we're all idiots who are independent repairers because uh, – They obviously didn't think that we would be investigating Autoglass Claims Limited when they they were first introduced to us. Um, And so we did go back and said, hang on a minute, this company's a Novus company owned by the same three directors that Novus New Zealand is owned by. That seems to be a bit of a conflict of interest with all of our personal information. Um, they said, no, they're absolutely completely separate companies, operated completely separately, and they advertised online their, their offices were actually in Lower Hutt, which is where I am. And I went down to their offices, and the sign on their door um, had Novus New Zealand and blast Claims Limited on the same door to the no. same office in the same no. building, in the same town.
0: What a story.
2: So I actually sent that out to all of our um, network, our independent network, and got severely reprimanded from IAG for doing it.
0: You got reprimanded because you were telling the truth, you were pointing out something that was public information, and you were sharing it with free citizens and they reprimanded you because?
2: Because it was humiliating for them because they had been, <laughs> been caught out in a big fat lie.
0: Oh, um, of course, because they had been um, telling everyone, no, 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 separate companies.
2: Not separate. They are now. They operate out of separate offices now.
0: But, that's but just at a that pre-
2: time where we were being assured of, of how safe our information was. You
0: are such a wonderful person. That well, is so funny. And, I mean, the idea that they reprimand you, don't you get a little thinking, oh, this could be tough for my business? Or you think you're yes. so far deep and your mouths would well just keep going?
2: Yes, I did absolutely think it would be um, tough for my business. Uh, but they're lying to us all. They're lying to us. And... Um, it, that, it, it's not right. It, it, the whole, the whole, it just doesn't make any sense to me. There's my logical brain kicking in again. The the argument that IAG used was that their claims department was just overrun and they couldn't deal with our invoices in a timely way, so they had to bring in a third party administrator. Which just it, it, it still doesn't make any sense no. because AGC don't have access to customer uh, contracts or, or customer pol- policyholder details, mm. which means we go to AGC to do a job. They can say, yes, that's perfectly fine. We give you permission to go ahead and do that job for that customer. So our, our operator, whoever it is around the country, goes away, does the job, sends their invoice. AGC sends the invoice to the insurer to ask if the policy's up to date, whether there's glass cover, whether there's any excess due. If the insurer says, yes, that's all in line, everything's fine, they pay the invoice. The insurer can say, no, that policy was cancelled two years ago. There's no cover. So then it comes back to AGC. AGC goes back to the repairer who's done the job in good faith and say, sorry, no insurance. No payment. Go find the driver. Chase them for the money. So, make any sense? They've got no access to the, the policy details. They're simply there to control the costs from independent operators. Yeah, you And I think what they've done yes. over the three years is they've put all of our information into a computer. It spits out an algorithm. Yes. So we go with a job and say this is code for this part, and so they put that in the computer. It spits out what the price should be. And that doesn't take into any other things that an independent operator may have to contend with that their bigger operators don't. Maybe we travel for an hour to hmm. go to the job. Um, you know, all sorts. But also, of you
0: shouldn't be handing your information. Have to hand your information to them. The, as I recall, too, Sue. So correct me if I'm wrong. Were not the computer systems between Smith and Smith? and the insurers is somehow integrated?
2: Well, they have to be integrated in some way because um, if you ring up, uh, for instance, state insurance claim 0800 claim number to lodge a claim and the recorded message says press 2 for windscreens and you go, oh, windscreen claim, press 2, you're diverted instantly to Smith, and Smith. So, you don't even, we don't in that instance even have the opportunity for the customer to say, Oh, but I've chosen my own repairer because you've instantly been diverted through to Smith and Smith branch.
0: And yet, when I take my policy out, it proudly states, because I remember you showing this to the committee, Oh, you get to choose your own repairer. Yes. It still says that? Yes. And I guess they have to do that for uh, commerce commission reasons. But so, and your understanding is that is it legal in New Zealand? We're not lawyers, so we, you know. But your understanding of it, you've looked at it. I thought the commerce commission, the commerce committee, said we weren't happy, and and the commerce commission weren't happy with that direction.
2: No, they weren't, and that's in a, a call centre. We're actively saying you can't choose okay. your own repairer.
0: But they can. What they say, do
2: effectively is the same thing by but, by making you. If I if I if you rang me and you were having a windscreen replaced, and a guarantee is very important to you. This is your vehicle. We want to make sure it's done by professional people. Of course. If your insurance company says, "Oh, well, we can't guarantee that because it's not a preferred repairer." the insinuation is that we're not good enough to be a preferred repeater. Our our job is not going to be up to standard, therefore there's not a guarantee. It's completely misleading because there's already the consumer guarantees, but also we all have our own comprehensive guarantees, and the insurers know that. So for them to suggest that there's no guarantee is just completely unacceptable. And and the Commerce Commission really have no interest at all. And they have no interest in AGC becoming part of the equation. Um, I actually met with them recently with a lawyer. We, we put in, uh, our network put in a, a bit of money each and we had a, a competition lawyer come with us to the Commerce Commission. It was very positive. We had an hour meeting. And their letter to us three months later or four months later suggested that they were slightly concerned that there could be an issue, but they don't have the means to investigate. Again, what what is the Commerce Commission for if they're not going to do their job? It might not be a sexy story. Um, You know, it's pretty, windscreens are pretty boring, but we are talking about safety and um, competitiveness in an in industry that's used but to presumably be $500 dollars
0: but does the same thing happen with panel beaters
2: I would say so yes like I mean, more what, than likely
0: yeah and i mean it could be happening with building repairs it could be happening with um every insurance job the same techniques and of course we're seeing every family owned business we used to sort of call them in a not it sounds derogatory now, but we didn't mean it that way, but like it was like ma and pa, you know business, yes. yeah, yeah, and you have your name and your reputation and you're your community and your church group, whatever, and you you work hard at it to maintain a good name it's not just a dollar
2: No, I feel well, so. And-
0: I feel so upset by this, Sue.
2: Well, it's it's nice to talk to someone who is upset by it. Um, and like I say, this is I, I'm speaking on behalf of a whole load of yes. independent businesses who literally just want to pay the bills, you know, put food on the table, uh, you know, have a have a nice little business there, proudly support staff, and and you know, and and have people work with us. And
0: all we want is it to be fair. Well, we've got to be fair. We've got uh, listeners. We have to get into this because it's so subtle, and unless you're an expert in a particular industry, um, from the outside you wouldn't know what's going on. And then it's very hard for those within the industry to speak out because, like Sue, you get attacked. But this is what we saw also in the lockdowns, wasn't it, where supermarket butcheries were essential, but your local butchery wasn't.
2: Where is the logic?
0: <laughs> it was disgusting. And so the so, little guy,
2: battle, battle, battle all the time, and that's all what we time. do day in, day out, fight, 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 just for our own little portion of the business.
0: That's And, and if it hadn't good. have been for you, speaking out, then they would be further down the road to wiping out all the leakage, which sounds like the river of filth. And you know that in every industry, the leakage is being systematically eliminated. And you can see this happening for family farms too.
2: It's everywhere. It's, it's just really sad. And the insurance industry, actually the Commerce Commission, right back at the get-go, sort of argued that there's no restriction for other networks or, or companies yes. to become preferred repairers. There's just go out and do
0: it. Yes. That He's was Paula Repstock, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. I absolutely, do. yeah, it's just it's almost laughable. When when AGC first were introduced, one of our very big um Oh, one of our one of our big commercial clients pushed for us to be able to become a preferred repairer. Um, and we went through the process very, very lengthy. They kept us hanging on for three years. I spent putting hours and hours and hours and hours of work into providing them all the information they wanted. Because we can provide them what they need. We have the network. We can provide the nationwide coverage and we can give them what they want via that by having consistency of pricing around the country so we we were offering them everything they they wanted and also superior service standards uh, in Wellington recently it was two or three weeks away for one of the big repairers to get out to do a windscreen replacement for a customer. I mean those service standards are easy for us to to beat, and that's what we were what we were doing, but we can also give them what they want, one point of contact, centralized invoicing, consistency of pricing, at the same time as looking after small New Zealand independent businesses. and they so, messed me around for three years and then said thanks but no thanks," and just shut it down.
0: Do you know, so you make windscreen sexy. You make the <laughs> There's excited. no such
2: thing as a sexy windscreen.
0: <laughs> you make
2: but you make it
1: like a parable
0: of our modern
1: age. I mean, your
0: industry is illustrative of what's happening up and down New Zealand. And what's happening up and down New Zealand is happening in Europe, it's happening in North America, it's happening in Australia. And you go somewhere now to get something done and they say, oh, no, we can't do that for six weeks. And you see everyone clock off at five o'clock and go home. Mike wouldn't clock off at five o'clock to go home if there was a job to be done.
2: No, absolutely right. Absolutely.
0: He wouldn't knock off. But if you're working for someone, if he was on wages and they treated him like just another number, five o'clock, I'm off home. Sorry, buddy. You know, my, not my problem. And, what,
2: what they're doing by squashing the little you know, small business is they're removing service from yes. the service industry. And, and, humanity.
0: and humanity. And humanity.
2: Yes. And it's sad because people expect a poor service. Yes we've've yes. we've become this nation of, of people that expect it to be a poor service and when you give them a good service it's you know they're sort of blown away and that's what we've worked very hard for to put the service back into service provider and we are very competitive at the same time. I appreciate that an insurance company doesn't want to pay double the cost for an independent repairer to do a windscreen replacement than one of their preferred repairers. I understand that completely, but we've always been very competitive. Um, but what now, you going to do? I'm gonna do you...
1: What
0: I'm going to do is this, Sue. I'm going to email the replay of this. I'm going to track him down and I'm going to send it to Mark Peck.
1: See if he, he remembers MP us.
0: For, yeah, he will. And I'm going to tell him that he and me might have to climb onto our horse again and sort go to back to Parliament or something, because this should be sorted. This should be, it shouldn't take someone to have to go to Parliament and talk to an MP and implore them, and then if they can be bothered, get a committee to look at and have a uncaring commerce commission that doesn't do its job or Ministry of Commerce or MB or whatever. Even, it'll have a Maori name too by now. They keep changing it. I can't keep up just to do their bloody job. And we have to demand better not just of our services that we get. We have to demand better of our government and our parliament because bit by bit, you and I can see where this is going to end up. It won't be tomorrow. But in 10, 20 years' time, Sue and Mike will be drinking their Pana calades on a beach somewhere. Oh, hope. And there'll be no independent operators
2: and then the price of windscreen replacements will be through the roof. I mean, don't I I don't want people to misunderstand that we want any special treatment no. as a small business. We just want to be on a level playing field. And now we've got AGC, there's an extra level of hoops we have to jump through.
0: Unbelievable. And, and to get
2: it in perspective, when we're um, talking to insurance brokers about it, it's it's like saying to a Crombie lockwood, you have to, you know, you have to go to your biggest competitor at claims renewal time and ask them if your premium prices are acceptable before you send out your premium notices. I mean, we're essentially having to have permission from our biggest competitor to carry out the services that we provide. What and a story! They- deem something fair and reasonable or not, you know, not fair and reasonable, they are telling us what our pricing should be. Do you is know, there another industry that has to go through that?
0: Do you know we have to stop? Because you make windscreens exciting, the story gripping, and what a story it is, but we've run out of time. You're going to keep in touch with us, Sue, because you and Mike, wonderful. Wonderful story. Illustrative of what is happening to family businesses in New Zealand and each of us
1: has to do our little bit because imagine it. Imagine it if everything is run by corporates
0: with no local, with a ownership stake in the service that they provide. And with institutional investors
1: run from overseas,
0: I think, dear listener, we can appreciate what that would look like, given the last little while, and it won't be pleasant, and it won't be the country that we seek. And the only thing that is stopping that from happening right this minute is the leakage. So we've got to build that leakage up into a flood. We've been talking to the wonderful Sue Kuiti, her husband, Mike. They run, I'm going to get this right, Supreme Screens in Wellington. They're a delight. If you're in the Wellington area, actually, they can probably help you from anywhere. Ring Supreme Screens before you ring your insurer and say, what do I do to get my windscreen? I tell you what, after my experience, That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to write the name down. That was Sue Kawiti. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, your Reality Check Radio. Not only that, by the way, Sue was at the protest. That's another big plus. Man, oh, man, what a person. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll have more coming. Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Well, here's the thing that's been in the media, but do we know much about it? This whole, what are they called? Section 501s, the deportees. I suspect listeners are like me, don't have a lot of sympathy uh, for people that are being deported because it's reported in the news that they're all bad, bad, bad people. And we certainly have seen some bad behavior, again, I guess, reported in the media. But there's Philippa Payne, who's been out there in New Zealand, and Australia, campaigning on this issue, knows a lot about the issue, knows the humanity behind the issue, and the law and the legal status and the history. And that's what we're going to explore today with Philippa. Good morning. Good morning, Rodney. How are you? Good morning, everyone. I am actually excellent. And I'm fascinated by you because you grew up a true ANZAC.
5: I did. I was born in Singapore while my father was in the Vietnam War and spent many years in my childhood traveling around army bases between New Zealand and Singapore.
0: And where the Australians and New Zealanders were fighting once again, side by side.
5: That's right. Uh, When I was based in Singapore with my family, Australia had an Air Force base in Malaysia. So we used to do a lot of inter-exchanging schooling and having that camaraderie right from our childhood through the armed forces.
0: Yeah. And so you feel, I guess, like the rest of us, apart from cricket and rugby, that Australians are our cousins.
5: I used to feel that um, if there are cousins that are terribly good at inflicting trauma, so um, yeah. well, I must I guess... admit I'm a bit bruised with my feelings about Australia after witnessing and seeing the things that I have for the last ten years.
0: Well, we'll get to that, but I can understand that. And I mean, I guess where I was leading with that is this idea that since day one we feel as though we've had Australia's back and we'd always feel as though Australia would have our back.
5: Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely, as far as it goes, in my home, in our community, in the army um, mantra that was around, it was definitely ANZAC was our epiphany of, of what we should be upholding.
0: Mm. And that, well, let's... You've spent a lot of time in Australia, Philippa, living?
5: I have. I lived there myself for around eight to nine years. And then in the last eight years, I've travelled there numerous times to go and visit within the detention centres. So, yeah.
0: Detention centres, that sounds. And on
5: Christmas Island, three times.
0: Detention centre sounds a, a, a word from the history books.
5: It's what they are, they're an immigration detention centre. And I wish that they were in the history books alone, but they're sadly still current.
0: Well, we're going to try and explain all this and we'll just take it quietly. What got you involved in looking at deportees and detention centres?
5: Well, we need to take a step back first. Please. When I was living in Australia, I'm a mother of five. Good Um, for you. We had been there for, I think, around three or four years, and my oldest daughter wanted to go to university. Mm -hmm. And for her to achieve that at that time, she would have to pay international student fees, which were going to be around $120,000 and not achievable for us. So the reality was that my daughter had to leave home and go back to New Zealand and start university here. Um, she came back to Christchurch and not long after the Christchurch earthquakes occurred. And myself, um, you know, I was a mother that knew that she was ready to fly the coop. We were ready for her to fly the coop as well. We wanted her to be an adult and we to stand on her own two feet. However, we were a very tight family and it was very heartbreaking that she was not going to be able to come over on Sunday or we weren't going to be able to participate in her life in any sort of way. And I kind of got on the computer and started voicing my opinion that why was it that New Zealand-born children were not allowed to access student loans in Australia? And that's how it all started. It honestly all started from there.
0: So you felt uh, in shifting to Australia and working in Australia and paying taxes in Australia, having your kids go to school in Australia, that you, and being a Kiwi, and being welcomed in Australia, like you didn't even need, I guess, I suppose you need the passport, but no visa, that you felt sort of a citizen, but that you didn't carry an Australian passport. You felt equal to an Australian while you were living and working in Australia.
5: At that point in time, Australia was going to be our home forevermore. We had made the decision that this was going to be where we were going to settle, that it was far more achievable to have a lifestyle where we could afford having five children because very much I felt penalised in New Zealand for having a larger family. Still Mm -hmm. do. Um, And it was where my children had become their own people, had their own community and were living their lives. And it was about a good future. And yes, we thought that Australia was going to be our home
0: forevermore. And then this, you got hit over the head by this reality that when it came to sending your child off to tertiary education university, was it? University. Suddenly, she's classified as an overseas student. Mm-hmm. like she's turning up from China or Hong Kong or uh, United States of America. And exactly. it didn't matter that you were living as of right in Australia, earning in Australia and paying taxes in Australia and could do until the end of time.
5: Mm-hmm. It didn't matter one bit. And, you know, I felt like that was real. It was a penalization on my daughter and you know it was a way to keep her dummified in many ways if she stayed in australia she's mm. allowed the opportunity to higher education she's a bright girl she worked hard to achieve it and she passed her degree
0: but if i may play devil's advocate that was the rules right it's just you mm-hmm. weren't aware of it at the time
5: mm-hmm. that was the rules but the rules were so unknown At that time, it was really, very hard to get a direct question. Um, Even the immigration sites were contradicting on what information was being put out there. Mm. And, you know, you had uh, (sighs) so many different categories of visas for what New Zealanders were on. One Kiwi's child could go to high school because they'd been here before a certain time. Another Kiwi's child was born there but couldn't go to high school and was... Um, couldn't become a citizen my daughter couldn't get um, higher education because we came out after 2001 so there were so many different lands i
0: see if if you had arrived in australia in the year 2000 your child could have gone to university just like an australian citizen's child
5: no my child would have had a pathway to residency
0: ah and then could have gone and then could but because you came after 2001, mm-hmm. your child didn't have a pathway to residency. Really? We
5: didn't have a pathway to residency. My husband, so, myself, or any of our five children had no fair pathway to residency.
0: So if you stayed in Australia and worked forevermore, you could never become an Australian citizen? No.
5: Nope not
0: with the rules that were in place at that time. See, this is – it's easy for me to play devil's advocate,
5: mm-hmm.
4: but
0: it's also not fair in a way mm-hmm. because we see the advertisements that the, that the Australian government mm-hmm. is running in New Zealand newspapers, come over to Australia and mm-hmm. be a nurse and go over here and do this and help us out and help build Australia, Watch. As makes us who stay in New Zealand feel a bit like mugs. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: And you see your family and friends heading over to Australia and living a great life, you think. But they don't tell you. And you wouldn't expect that you'd be treated the equivalent of, oh, I don't know, a Pakistani working in Dubai where you are definitely a second-class citizen, and when it suits Mm -hmm. them, they'll kick you out. Or you'll be a second-class citizen and not entitled. You'll put down your, you might, you know, you go over there, you'll meet a Kiwi, you'll get married, you'll have children. It's not part of your expectation in the whole package that 10 years down the track, say, your child can't access the same rights and privileges to Tertiary education that an Australian citizen could.
5: Now, there's another key element that I learned then at the same time. My children, no matter how long they stayed in Australia, because they had no access to that pathway to residency, were never going to be able to vote. They were never going to be able to have a political representation for matters in their life if we remained in Australia.
0: See, I wouldn't have expected that. Like, that's a shock to me.
5: It was a big shock to me. It was a huge shock. And I'd also like to add, we were headhunted to go to Australia. My husband at the time was headhunted and asked to be brought over there and offered a job. They paid for our container. They paid for everything for us to go over to Australia to become part of their community. And we did. We did for four years. We were part of Australian community, and it. I want to point out here that me personally, that time period changed changed myself drastically. I, I had growth as a person. I learnt to become an adult. I learnt that if I wanted to make friends with people, that life was about listening and not about just being about yourself. And I met the most amazing people in a town called Ballarat, just um, north of Melbourne, and those people showed me kindness that I hadn't seen in my own personal life for a long, long time. And that I will forever, ever be grateful for, Australia. Australia is so intertwined with who I am as a person because that time period there, it helped me to find who I was going to become.
0: Was that because you found yourself as a mother and a wife setting up in a whole new community where you knew no one, whereas you'd always been in a community where you were known and where you knew people.
5: Well, sort of. You know, in the army, we travelled every two years, so it wasn't like I was permanently... You know, as an adult, it was more about going somewhere and being the person that I wanted to be Mm. and bringing kindness and things that I wanted to value in my life and having them accepted, Mm. whereas living in Canterbury, where I had lived for the majority of my um, teenage years and the beginning of my marriage, I... Found it hard to make the changes of the person that I wanted to be when people's perception was always going to stay the same, when the environment was always going to stay the same. Yes,
0: I get that. I get that. You're sort of pigeonholed and you broke free of the pigeonhole that mm-hmm. you had probably put yourself mm-hmm. in in part and been put in by others. And then as an older, uh, as an adult, but older adult, not just a young adult you say, okay, this is who I am and this is who mm-hmm. I'm going to be and you feel empowered. And, Very much and, so. And you seek out those friends yeah. that will empower you in that way rather than with the same old, same old friends. hmm Nice. And like me, you would head over to Australia and – I would think of it, I guess, as like shifting to the North Island. I mean, I know it's not quite the same. I'm in a different country and I don't have a passport and I'm not an Australian citizen. But I would think as a Kiwi, it's a bit like when I go to the UK. I was quite shocked that I wasn't sort of welcomed with open arms and cuddled as a member of the far-flung... British Empire, because I know this sounds old fashioned, but I sort of felt I was going home. You know what I mean? Uh,
5: Look, um, there's, you know, I think back to certain points in my life that have been impacted by myself. And I was shocked when I moved to Australia at how different our cultures were. Um, I was shocked that Kiwis were ostracized so much. Um, It was a real reality check. I was extremely lonely. I can tell you that there were times that I used to ring up the tally banking just to tell my kids that I was on the phone to someone. <laughs> <You> no, <know>, mummy's <money's laughs> on the phone. You know, really, there's nobody there. But um, it was it it was growing into adulthood for myself. And you know what? It connected my family tighter. Mm. We were all experiencing new things. It made us go on more family trips. It made us more um, move as a unit in, in our sports and our community and everything, and it was the right decision for my family at that time. Mm. Did I, little yeah. did I know, little did I know, though, um, how voicing about that our children couldn't get university was going to be the beginning
0: yes so we get that now what i don't understand is this lack of pathway to residency because as i understand it in new zealand you sort of come here and you work away and you be a good citizen and you apply to become a resident which as i understand it correct me if i go wrong Philippa. here in new zealand you apply to become a resident and I think it's almost a bit pro forma. You know, you're working and maintaining a place and you're a good character and you become a New Zealand resident. At that point, as I understand it, you still keep your passport from your overseas country. Yes.
5: Wow. Australia wasn't doing that at the time as well. There was a lot of. But tell me,
0: tell me, is that, am I correct about New Zealand? Or maybe. I don't know all of
2: that. Okay. And then,
0: so you can become, I I think I've got this right, and I'll get emailed if I got it wrong. You become a resident, and you might be on an an English passport or a Russian passport, but you're a New Zealand resident. You're entitled then to come and go, you know, without a visa because you're a resident. And then the next step is to become a citizen. Which means you get a New Zealand passport. And again, that is just a process. If, as you, that phrase you use, there's a path to it. But what you're saying in New Zealand, uh, in Australia, if you're a New Zealander, there's no way for you to become a resident.
5: You had to meet certain pathways. Now, those pathways weren't obtainable for hundreds and thousands of Kiwis living in Australia at that time. You, there was, you either had to be a skilled migrant. I, mean, I won't be able to rattle all of, yes. all of the pathways, but, you know, it's things like skilled migrant. Well, people in the mining industry don't always meet that. You know, yep. people working in the labour force don't always meet that. You yep. had to yep. earn over a certain amount of money in yep. some categories, and that one was actually only changed until after we'd started advocating. There's been certain improvements that things have happened okay. along the way but there was definitely no pathway for myself and family to apply for residency-citizenship because I personally, I would have got dual citizenship. I love New Zealand. New Zealand is my home base. New Zealand is every essence of who I am still, you know, but my future was going to be in Australia.
0: So when you say... There was no pathway. That's exactly what it was, because Mm -hmm. you could get the form, but there was no category which would allow you. So they were happy for you to work there, they were happy for you to live there, they were happy for you to pay taxes there and be entitled, I guess, to some level of government support, right? Your kids could go. Now
5: let's pause here too. Yep. Because after 2001, all right, I don't know if you've heard of the SCB visa, Special Category Visa, John Howard put anyone that was entering Australia from New Zealand who had citizenship, placed them on the Special Category 444 visa. Okay, Mm -hmm. now if you entered after 2001, you were deemed a permanent resident for tax purposes only. So my children could not access any disability insurance that they call over there, the National Disability Insurance, except New Zealand parents were the one nation that had to pay into that insurance but weren't allowed to access it for our children.
0: My goodness. Yeah. But they could go to school.
5: They could go to school. But if they had a disability, they were not entitled to any funding at that school or at home to help them with their disability.
0: Well, you must look at these advertisements that are running in New Zealand right now for nurses with a very jaundiced eye.
5: Well, it's changed. It's changed since the 1st of July this year, June June this year, the 1st of June this year. Now it's completely different. But it's been a long process to get it there.
0: So now, would there be a pathway for you?
5: Now, there is a pathway for me, yes.
0: Oh, how confusing. But
5: here's what I would like New Zealand to know, because we're under this illusion at the moment that everything is going to be go great and things are completely different. All right, if we're going to jump forward to somebody getting a residency now, you don't actually have to fit a category if you're in New Zealander, They've opened the pathway door. You don't have to have a medical exam to pass a medical, um, ex, you know, exam either. However, you still have to do a character test.
4: Mm.
5: Now, okay, I'm not fearful of that for myself, but let's be realistic. That it still means there's going to be thousands of New Zealanders living in Australia that are not going to get that residency-citizenship, which means there's still going to be thousands of New Zealanders living in Australia that are still going to be coming through the deportation process.
0: And so that character test might be a criminal conviction or you smoked a joint and got caught or...
5: association
0: association oh okay so even in our, even no criminal behavior but you you were seen to associate with criminals that would be enough to knock you back and then you've again in a category where you have no pathway to citizenship.
5: not only will you not have no pathway to citizenship you just sort of then put yourself under the spotlight of the Australian immigration authorities and the chances are your life is probably going to change.
0: Hmm. okay this is this is shocking to me i'm sorry to say because i never knew this and i apologize to you and i apologize probably listeners are sitting at home saying rodney how could you be so stupid um easy um i'm a, i'm quite stupid <laughs>
5: don't think you're stupid well you know don't what i mean bad. i didn't know
0: this i remember it sort of vaguely but it, it didn't I didn't look into it or study it. So, oh, my goodness, this has a huge – I get the point now because all I thought was some people had been to jail been bad buggers and they came out of jail and Australia sent them back here and we wish they didn't. And we felt, well, that's a bit weird because they've got family over there and kids over there, but they get sent here and can't see their kids. And it's a bit of a nuisance because they're causing trouble here. But you can sort of see, well – if we could get rid of our bad guys, we would too. But what you're saying is this is far, far bigger than criminals. This is like your daughter. So um, okay. you're on a good behavior bond of a high standard and potentially an arbitrary standard and a potentially a snitches standard because someone could snitch on you falsely and then you're having to defend yourself, you don't have any rights until you've got that residency.
5: Well, here's a really good time to bring up, we talk a lot about Section 501, but after that was, because Section 501's actually been in the Australian immigration since 1958. Yeah. But in 2014, late 2014, they amended it. New Zealand hadn't been even in the top 10 of nationalities of people being deported from Australia. Once it was amended, within I think it was approximately five months, we were the number one nationality in Australian detention centres and since then, subsequent deportation and removals ever since. We have fluctuated at times with Iraq going up and down, who's the number one people in detention, but New Zealand has been in the top two since 2015. Do we know, uh, and I didn't, uh, sorry, I forgot to add on here. There is another section, it's called section 116. So section 116 is far more draconic in many ways than section 501, because section 116, if you've been charged with a crime, someone's come along and have accused you of a crime, and it falls, under an automatic, it falls under a category, it's automatic detention before the court of law. Whoa. Before you go to court, before you even get a chance to defend yourself. And then what they do with Section 116, as they say to you when you're in detention after you've been there, you know, two years is the average for someone to start their appeal, to even get to the first stage of appeal. Once they're in there, they say to you, look, if you agree to go back to New Zealand, if you agree to be removed, even though you were born in New Zealand, but you've been here three months, Bill, if you agree to go back to New Zealand, we'll give you the opportunity in three years to reapply. You can possibly come back to Australia in three years. So, or you could go back to New Zealand and you could do your appeal there. Now, here's... here's Here's how clever Australia are. People will come back to New Zealand and the charges in Australia will be dropped. So they've been deported from Australia for an alleged crime, yet the charges are dropped. They've been removed to New Zealand. At the end of three years, they'll try and reapply to re-enter Australia and they'll get cancelled under Section 501 on character grounds.
0: I get it. It's a beautiful catch-22. So let me get the picture. I could have gone over with my mum and dad to Australia when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. My mum and dad worked their entire lives in Australia. I go to school in Australia and I work in Australia and I get married in Australia. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned... Yeah, I'm a New Zealander because I was born there and I've got a New Zealand passport, but I never got around to it. And, in fact, I couldn't get around to it because whenever I looked into it, there wasn't a pathway. Mm -hmm. And there might have been a pathway at some point, but it kept changing and I didn't have an immigration consultant and I didn't really think it mattered. Mm -hmm. Then I get accused of a crime and I get charged immediately because I'm not an Australian citizen. I'm a New Zealand citizen, technically. I get detained. Mm -hmm. I'm actually in jail, correct?
5: Detention.
0: But it's like a jail.
5: It's worse than a jail.
0: Oh, really?
5: Oh, yes, it's way worse than a jail. And let's not forget that your arrest probably was with uh, the federal police, the local police, the immigration department, the detention um, police, which they call um, ERT, and there could be anywhere between 12 to 40 people sending on your home to arrest you with guns. That's how it happens all the time. All the
0: My time. wife, my kids.
5: Yep, they've seen it. They've come in. They've seen it all.
0: And I'm in worse than a jail Mm -hmm. because I'm outside of the proper jurisdiction Mm -hmm. of Australian law Mm -hmm. because I'm not a citizen.
5: And your visa that you have had issued has been revoked, meaning you go from any sort of scale of low um, low. I don't know what they call them in prison right at the moment, you know, a low risk and you're automatically ranked top risk. So you are not allowed, while you're in there, you are not allowed access to any sort of education. You can't have access to any sort of visitations outside of detention. You're completely shut down to a high-risk prisoner. Detainee detaining.
0: And where are these detention centres, Philippa?
5: There's one in Melbourne, Maitre, there's one in Brisbane, there's one in Sydney, there's one in Christmas Island and there's one in Younger Hill, Perth. And every every detention centre is notorious for different things. Like? I would say after, because I went, the last visit I did was towards the end of last year, and I was really shocked when I drove into Brisbane Immigration Detention Centre. I've been there previously, and it had been quite a wee hub. You know, they used to be able to allow the detainees to interact in, in amongst certain compounds and stuff. When I drove into that detention centre, it was such a wave of a stench of depression. It is the most place I've ever been to my life people are in compounds that are you know I don't know 6 by 10 and they're not allowed out of those case compounds at all apart from 1 hour a day and that's it they have to sit there the same people day after day after day after day after day
0: and the number 1 or number 2 person by nationality in a detention centre, or being detained, I think you're I'm picking up right. Is a Kiwi. Mm-hmm.
5: So let's break that down. Potentially,
0: the majority are, are, the biggest, the biggest citizenship in those detention centres. This is a scandal. Mm-hmm.
5: The biggest citizenship in the detention centres is New Zealanders. But let's break down what a New Zealand citizen might entail. The majority of New Zealand citizens in detention in Australia are Maori and Pacific Islander.
0: Mm-hmm. Because, they dominate. because um, Maori and Pacific Islanders dominate, I guess, in Kiwis heading to Australia. Would that be fair? Like, there's a lot of them.
5: There are a, a lot of them because you know, for many. People- or are you
0: suggesting? there's a racial element to their being absolutely,
5: picked up. absolutely 100% i've been saying for 8 years that section 501 amendments are being racially implemented daily
0: so this is like an all white australia policy
5: absolutely it's another way of them re- reintroducing it in 2015 oh god was it i think it was 2016 oh, sorry my memory doesn't always carry the best of the years Myself, Erin Omoronga, Chris Barber and Calvin Davis travelled for about, you know, five days with us. We had, got hopped in the camper van and we travelled around every state bar, Tasmania, and visited people in the detention centres. And we also went into prisons um, to visit people that were being held for immigration matters. When Calvin Davis was talking to people along that trip and we were having hui's in the community, Calvin would get up and he would talk about how there was Operation Fortitude in Australia and that was when they stopped people at the Melbourne train station and they were asking them for their visas. Now, they weren't stopping white people. They were stopping people of colour to ask them. Where is your visa to be in Australia? Wow. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. when Tony Abbott was prime minister.
0: So Calvin Davis was actually in your camper van.
5: Yep. Calvin Davis, very much from Labor Party before they came into uh, power, I guess, was a big advocate and politician talking about. Um, so
0: you're driving long, long distances, mm-hmm. and he's clicks. sitting the They
5: them clicks. Clicks. Yep, yeah, we drove seven, nine hundred clicks in a day.
0: With Calvin. Yep.
5: Yeah. Uh Calvin travelled from Sydney to the Gold Coast with us, and then, and then I think after that he went back to his own. But Calvin also travelled to Christmas Island,
0: and he was shocked. I would guess, like I would be, by what he discovered.
5: Mm -hmm. Very shocked.
0: He was. You know,
5: one of the things I think about, you know, for me that I can remember in in my time in politics in in New Zealand is there was actually a time when John Key was Prime Minister and Calvin challenged him in the beehive on the deportation issue, called John Key gutless, and, you know, it was all over the paper, and John Key's bodyguard pushed Calvin Davis out of the way. Mm-hmm. You know, that made national news here at the same time. I think it was, like, within a week, John Key stood up in the beehive here in New Zealand and called everybody on Christmas Island rapists, murderists, and gangsters. And to this day, I don't know if John Key actually realises how many people's lives he put at risk with that statement.
0: Well, mm-hmm. this is shocking to me because all the I female
5: f- politicians of New Zealand stood up and, uh, and I don't I can't say all because you know I can't remember all of them. But I'm very aware that the majority of the Green Party female politicians stood up the next day and said that they did not um, stand for rapists, murderers, and paedophiles, but that they stood for human rights and what was going on on Christmas Island was wrong.
0: And Calvin Davis was. Deputy Prime Minister, subsequently.
5: Well, as soon as Calvin Labour was elected, no one heard from Calvin anymore.
0: No, off in the way. So, back to this issue I could be on this Christmas island in a detention centre as a Kiwi, Mm
4: -hmm.
0: having lived and worked in Australia, married in Australia on serious charges
5: doesn't have to be serious Rodney oh no the first time I went to Christmas Island I was really shocked um you know every trip's been different but the first time I went to Christmas Island there was actually a lot of guards that were there at that time that were slipping me notes can you see this person can you meet this person
0: the the guards
5: yep because the first thing that I noticed after that trip to Christmas Island was the high amount of, of literacy. People were unable to read. All of their immigration papers were overwhelmed. I met a person there that was there for graffiti. I met people that have been in detention for shoplifting. It does not have to be a high charge. The other thing we need to probably talk about here is cheapest, you know, cheapest, cheapest, 501. Creeper. When they amended it, they amended it so that if anyone has had any court-appointed consequences for a charge, be that drug rehabilitation, um, counselling, mental illness clinics, or incarceration, that could be accumulated to, if it's over 12 months, automatically you're placed in detention. Now, here's the big thing about that, that change that happened, is they made it retrospective. So, yeah, so we, <clears throat> the highest people at risk of being placed in detention centre in Australia are the long-term residents. The people that have been there 30, 40, 50 years think that everything about them is Australian, think that they're completely safe, but they do not have citizenship. Australia will now accumulate throughout your lifetime and if you've been had think court-appointed over 12 months, you're placed in detention. So, believe well, me, there was lots of people that I got run from inside detention that had not committed any offences for 20 or 25 years. But because they would had an offence that mounted over the 12 months, they were in
1: detention.
0: You're on Reality Check Radio. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. And Rodney Hyde is here trying to pick his jaw off his desk because to me, Philippa, you're just lobbing bomb after bomb after bomb at me. And I feel guilty of not looking into something. You know what I mean? I had no idea. And I feel naive. I actually feel betrayed a bit uh, because I, really I like just it. I just assumed that to be in a detention centre in Christmas Island, you were, as John Key said, a rapist and a murderer and a beater up of wives or something. But you could be a graffiti artist or a shoplifter,
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, or be accused of that, not yet gone to mm-hmm. court, or you could be an upright citizen who had some criminal charge or misdemeanor 25 years ago mm-hmm. that means you get arrested by the mm-hmm. federal police and dumped in a detention centre. Yeah which as you describe is worse than a prison Mm -hmm. and you're in this detention center with your visa, your right to be in Australia reversed and everyone would be sitting there listening to this or me and you'd be thinking, Oh, well, just pop back to New Zealand, but hang on. You've lived your entire life in Australia. You've got a wife, Mm -hmm. you've got children. You may Mm -hmm. have grandchildren, you've got all Mm -hmm. your friends, you've got your business, you've got your job.
1: Exactly.
0: But here you are banged in detention, Mm -hmm. and New Zealand means nothing to you. It may as well be Iceland. Mm -hmm. Not much different, in a way, to a detention island. (laughs) So then they say to you, when you're in this detention island, just... They come along and they say, well, if you hop back to New Zealand, you can get out of this detention centre and in three years reapply to come back in.
5: Only under Section 116, under Section 501.
0: We know know you're not going to get in. Yeah, Yeah. we know you're not going to get in. So the ones that are sitting in a detention centre not prepared to come back to New Zealand, Mm -hmm. what are they hoping for? change.
5: They're hoping to be treated most of all like human beings, really. I mean, you know, the average stay for anyone in an Australian immigration detention centre is 780 days. While you're in there, you will witness the most horrific scenes. You will be treated in the most barbaric way. One of the reasons why it's different to a prison system is, you know, prisons are have to uphold certain categories, you know, have to uphold certain human rights and, you know, we're supposed to be able to inspect them and some are even state-owned, you know, or in New Zealand. In Australia it's not like that in the detention centre at all, at all. And, you know, one of the the things that your jaw will drop because over the years I have been sitting here going, I can't get shocked anymore. And then you get shocked some more. Because one of the most saddest things that I wish New Zealand would understand is the people that are working in the detention centres, the people that are running the detention centres, the majority of them are Kiwis. That they changed the spectrum of who they employed in the detention centres as New Zealand became the number one nationality. All of a sudden it wasn't just, and I don't want to sound discriminative here, it wasn't just Asian or someone from a different nationality who was probably quite lean in their stature. Now we've got Pacific Island Maori men who are broad, who are brawn, who can hold their own, and they started employing our own people to be able to counteract what was going on in there. And the abuse of culture that I've seen inside those detention centres is shameful.
0: And presumably, some of those working in the detention centres don't have permanent residence.
5: That's exactly right. (laughs) That is exactly right. And I tell you what, if they did what they did in a detention centre outside of it, they'd most definitely be charged with a crime. Like what? Assault common, a common, happens daily, you know, like drugs, who brings it into the detention centres, mainly the staff, you know, the hypocrisy that goes on in these places is just mind-boggling.
0: I can understand now why you're into this, because it so offends your sense of justice, doesn't it?
5: Look, before I went to do this interview today, I tried to promise myself, try and do it without crying, right? Because it does bring back to an emotion. I have never had anyone in my family directly go to prison, be placed in a detention centre. When I travelled around Australia in that camper van and we went into detention centres and I sat across from men who, if you're walking down the street, you'd probably be quite intimidated by. However, when I'm in detention centre, and especially what happened that day and most of the time, I meet with men particularly because the majority are men who are overwhelmed, who are scared, who are fearful, who are so concerned for their families, who don't have any comprehension of why this is happening or how they can change it. And it's trauma. It is true trauma that you sit across and you see. And, you know, you said before, you know, why isn't people in detention centre, why don't they decide to come back to New Zealand and more of them come back here? Well, let's stop at a moment and think, How does New Zealand treat them? Why would you want to come back here? Because as soon as they fly on our shores, we criminalise them as well. We're an extension of what Australia does.
0: Oh, I agree. If if a Section 501 shifted next door, I'd be alarmed. Mm -hmm. We don't even
5: ask them, though. You know, we Uh, just presume.
0: So how many Kiwis do we know, have been deported in this way?
5: 3,200 was the last statistics that I myself saw. I believe that has grown.
0: So your daughter, if you were still in Australia, not only is not, was not only not entitled to go to university, or had to pay as a foreign overseas student, I should say, Mm -hmm. at that time had no pathway to become a resident. Mm -hmm. And one slip-up, and I say slip-up because you're saying it can be a misdemeanor, Mm -hmm. but even the allegation of a Mm slip-up, she could find herself arrested Mm -hmm. and detained Mm -hmm. Without a hearing.
5: Mm-hmm. And so could I.
0: Well, I wouldn't live there under any of the, I wouldn't live there under any circumstance under those conditions.
5: Well, that's why I'm here.
0: <laughs> no, I wouldn't.
5: Um, when I say that, the choice was not voluntary to come back to New Zealand. My ex-husband's job asked him to relocate to New Zealand. I was not happy with that. I wanted to stay in Australia. I had already started advocating with Iwi and Oz. I was already out there holding protests, trying to you know, bring enough attention and awareness about what was going on. And um, he made the decision to come back. And I, for the next two years, really went downhill. I was quite depressed and overwhelmed. I was like I'm right back where I left however I knew you know like there's a strength and I knew that there must have been a reason why I was here and I have never wanted to be a person to put myself out there for any sort of anything apart from I knew it was about being a voice and so I have just consistently at every opportunity, try to bring education and awareness. And as the advocacy developed, ha- made the pathway so that other people could share their story. Mm. Because we are not going to know the truth if we just read about it from one person and their story for their whole life. It's about getting lots of people's stories out there. Because as 3,200 people have come back to New Zealand. I've been saying every family in New Zealand is going to be affected soon. Every family is going to know someone, be it in your immediate line or your wider far now, who's been removed from Australia for some reason.
0: It's a funny thing that you say because I need a rifle to control rabbits. And I won't get one because. I went through the process of applying for a gun licence and as I understood it, it would mean that a policeman could come into my house without a search warrant and check my house out. And there's no way on God's earth I would surrender my right to privacy and not having a policeman just barge in without having to go and see a judge. That's bad enough, funnily enough, for me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to live day in and day out thinking that any policeman deciding to annoy me mm-hmm. because of my political views or whatever could just walk in and knock on my door and start coming in. So That's, no. that's happened,
5: though. Yes. You know, that's happened. But, you know, if, we, if we take a moment and we look at two men that have been publicised throughout Australian media as notorious bad men, who I've met personally, who are in their late 60s and have lived in Australia for over 50 years. Their mother is on her deathbed, and they stood against, in the um, state of Tasmania, I believe it was, or or South Australia, they stood in a court case against the state government there, about bringing in association laws and club laws, they've won. Now, I have seen the immigration papers which state that they are a threat to national security of Australia because of that court case. These men have only had two convictions for marijuana in their whole entire lifetime, one each, and they're brothers, and they are publicised continuously.
0: Yes, so this is my point. So I wouldn't live in Australia now, knowing what you've just told me, because I feel terrified enough of the situation that I'm in in New Zealand. But you poke your head over the parapet like these two gentlemen have, Mm -hmm. the media and the politicians and the system can destroy you and lock Absolutely. you up. Absolutely. And you can be sitting there screaming uh-huh. about your rights, uh-huh. but your point is you have none.
5: You have none. Now there's two things, you know, like when when myself and Erina, because Erinna Mulinger and I started Group 501 together, she um is still of course as part of Group 501 as a campaign, but she's now gone on to become a migration agent. So the advocacy work in that she couldn't actually do because, you know, she has to live within certain guidelines of her role. As time developed, the advocacy became about so many different things, so many different things. But, like, I can tell you of people that I have met that are transgender that have been attacked by the Sydney and and targeted by the Sydney police repetitively and now are in Wellington you know, they didn't do a crime at all. There is plenty of innocent people that have been removed from Australia, plenty. And I can also tell because you that the time the I police... travel into, it, I go into Australia, I fear myself. You know, <laughs> I'm a target.
0: Yes, you would be because the police can easily provoke you. Oh
5: or say something that's, that, you know, their perspective. And yes. please, I don't want to sound like I'm negative about police because they don't no, no, you know. No, but
0: they, the point is that yeah. it's easy to end up. If, if a police officer wants to put you on the wrong side of the law, mm-hmm. they can readily do it. And oh. you rely on their goodwill, their honour, and, and them upholding the badge and the integrity. Mm-hmm. And if they're prepared not to do that, and we've seen that in New Zealand all too recently if they're not prepared to do that they can achieve any affect any result so you're actually living it's it's dystopian that you can just the, the, and of course that doesn't matter whether it's 3200 or 200 or 12000 the point is it can happen mm-hmm.
5: and and as we know You know, like, as I said earlier, that the laws have changed since this year. And we will have a lot more people, I believe, from New Zealand exit to live in Australia because those pathways are now open. They're not being fully aware of the vulnerabilities that are still in play for them as well. But the deportation is still going to keep going. We're at 3,200 now. Even I will admit we're struggling as a country. We're struggling to deal with the issues that the deportation removal brings into play in our country. What the hell are we going to do when we hit the ten thousand mark? Indeed. What are we going to do? Um, the
0: do Kiwis in Australia know how vulnerable they are?
5: Generally, not until it happens to them. Now our typical, the,
0: sorry, our typical view our typical view is that that as long as I behave myself, nothing bad will happen to me. Oh yeah. But you and I aren't that naive, are we?
5: No. Let's let's talk about the car accidents. You know, I've met people that have been working in Australia for 20 years driving trucks. They've had a car accident and they've somehow been done for manslaughter or, you know, charge of a vehicle or something that they might charge them for, that consequence could end them up placed in an incarcerated or community detention or detention centres. We've got Kiwis that were driving trucks in Australia that I know of myself that had brain aneurysm. But they couldn't access any social support or any insurance. So they had to keep driving. One of the first articles that came out in New Zealand about someone being removed from Australia to New Zealand was a man who actually stole a credit card. And with that credit card, he purchased a wheelchair. Now, he purchased that wheelchair because his daughter was in hospital The hospital would not release his daughter to him unless he had a wheelchair. He couldn't afford a wheelchair. He stole a credit card, wrong thing to do. I will never condone that he did the right thing to do. But instead of looking at the action, let's look at the whole story. Because that man was charged with fraud, which is one of the hardest convictions. Once you're charged with fraud, you're pretty much guaranteed to gonna be removed. He's now living in New Zealand. His daughter is in Australia. It's heartbreaking. There's I'm, thousands of stories out I'm here sorry, there's
0: people. nothing there's nothing I can say. I've lost for words, I'm lost for questions.
5: You know, one of the harvest radio interviews I ever did was when um, it was a talk back radio station and a gentleman rang up and he talked about the fact that his father had only been released from detention a week before he passed, that even though he had a life-threatening illness was not allowed to be reunited with his family where he had lived for 40 years and they let him out of detention a week before they passed and here's why they let them out of detention. Because if he'd stayed, he would have been a death in custody. So instead of giving him compassion six months beforehand to have some time with his family, they let him out in his deathbeds. The stories, Rodney, The heartbreaking. Yes, unfortunately, there is a percentage of the 501s, deportees, that are not good in their soul. But there is a huge amount of people that have been rehabilitated that have had some life-altering event happen with them. And since then, they've been demonised.
0: Are there women in detention centres?
5: Absolutely. Kiwi women? They're normally kept in the uh, Perth detention centre, which is at the Perth detention centre. In Perth, there's two. There's one in a little township called Yonga Hill, which is right next to the sewerage, kept right next to the local sewerage and often flood. And then there's another one at the Perth Airport. Just as you walk out of those gates when you come out of the Perth Airport, if you turn to the right, you'll see after the car park, you'll see some mesh fences and then a building. And that there is a detention centre. And that detention centre, they deem it as their medical transfer detention centre. And I know people, it's, it's smaller than a house, right? It's a very, very small detention centre. I've met with people that have been there for over eight years in that one detention centre. Never
4: smelling
5: those, smelling those gas fumes because it just stinks from the airport. But they so tell me about out. eight years. Oh,
0: eight years.
5: Eight years. That that man that I met, he's not a New Zealander because as as time developed and you know we have a lot of advocacy in the world for people with, with refugees. And I totally support that as well. But there was no one advocating for for 501s. And so as I became advocating more and more, I learned that I couldn't just be the person advocating for New Zealanders, that it had to be one voice for everybody.
1: Yes, good for you. One
5: of the things in detention centres that is huge in its um, atmosphere is it's very nationalised. It's very segregated by your nationality. Whereas in prison, you're segregated by your crime. You've got categories. You know, shoplifters don't generally get put in the same section as a person that's done murder. In detention, no categories. You've got people that are there for graffiti, bunking next to people that are there for murder, sleeping next to somebody that's there for association, and so on. They're all together.
0: Isn't it strange because I'm sitting here saying to myself, hmm, I wonder why, you know, this isn't reported in the media because it's a horrific story. And then I think, oh, yeah, media. Ah." (laughs) And that's how it allows for a prime minister such as John Key Mm
4: -hmm.
0: to dismiss them Mm
5: -hmm.
0: as, what was it, murderers, rapists, what was the other thing? Pedophile. Murderers, pretty,
5: rapists, gangsters,
0: and pedophiles. That's pretty disgusting. <laughs> yep. So you're saying that put people at risk because they come back to New Zealand mm-hmm. and they might have been done for shoplifting 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but the Prime Minister has called that person one of four categories. hmm mm-hmm.
5: exactly, exactly. It was, it was so distressing in detention when John Key said that. So distressing.
0: And he would know that he was wrong. Oh, of course
5: he would. Of course he would. But he was getting called out on his inaction to do anything to advocate for our country that was being affected by this, even though it's happening in Australia.
4: Well, and picture this. As far
5: this. as that goes... Why is Australia having immigration detention centres in the Pacific? Full stop. Because it's such a big, wider question statement. Every Pacific island has been affected. Full stop. Tonga stopped taking deportees for four years. Tonga became the second highest nationality of citizens in indefinite detention. Tongan men never to be able to get out of detention in Australia because Tonga wasn't obligated to take them back.
0: So your granddad's (laughs) in a trench at Gallipoli, Mm -hmm. fighting and dying with his mates, and in that moment is forged the Anzac legend, and spirit. Mm -hmm. They could never have imagined that 100 years on Mm -hmm. there would be New Zealanders held in detention. Exactly. Which is worse than jail.
5: Mm -hmm. My mother says that my grandfather would curl over in his grave if he knew what was going on. He would. And what I've said repetitively is Anzac was formed on the battlefield. It is not owned in Parliament.
0: No. Well, Philippa, you have left me speechless. I'm not dead, but I still curled over (laughs) when you described to me what's happening. I appreciate what you've done and what you're doing. You've certainly opened my eyes. I'm looking forward to the feedback from listeners because they may have their own stories or own experiences. They may have a different view. Mm -hmm. And we may have you back if there's questions for you, if you wouldn't mind. But I've got to thank you because you have seen injustice and you haven't looked the other way. No. And it's easiest thing in the world just to look away. And I'm ashamed about John Key. And you got to wonder how... People can sleep at night at times. I can't imagine what those conditions in those detention centres are like. I just, it must be horrific. We will look into this, Philippa. Can you please stay in touch? And I hope we get lots of feedback. The feedback is email me at inbox at rarelycheck.radio. Text me at twenty fifty seven. This is about humanity, isn't it? Just what is it to be a humane person? To be to have some humanity, and the idea that um, we're not talking some. I don't know how to do this in a non-judgmental way, but you know we're not talking about some third-world hellhole state that you Mm -hmm. wouldn't want to end up in jail in because you know you wouldn't be able to fall back on your rights. We're talking about Australia, and we're talking about Kiwis. And I can imagine if a New Zealander was arrested in Timbuktu, Kurdistan, or some horrible place for dealing drugs, our embassy would be there helping. But if you're in Australia... No, because as the Prime Minister says, you're these sort of dirty, filthy people. Well, we've had enough of being called names um, because we've seen a lot of it lately and it's a way of trying to end a political debate and a debate about people being citizens just like you and I, just like each other. And when you read those ads about "all come to Australia, well... Remember Philippa's story. And also, if you've got family and friends in Australia, check their status with them. Ask them, did they know? Because I could promise you, if it were me, I'd be getting my family to hell out of there because that's not a safe place to live, not a place where you don't have rights, not a place where you don't have a resort to hear your charges in a court of law. No. Philippa Payne, you have given us a real talk, and I thank you for that, and I look forward to having you back. Thank you for your time today.
5: Thank you for having me on, Rodney.
0: Well, we're blessed, to be honest, because um, you're like a very special person. Walking amongst the demonised, through no fault of their own, quite often, and even yeah. even if they have done wrong, they have a right to their day in court. Absolutely,
5: they do.
0: I'm and I'm no. actually I'm actually quite emotional. I'm very sorry. Uh, I um I'll end I'll end the interview, and we shall talk. Uh, this is real talk with Rodney Hyde, Really Check dot Radio, and. The poor host has had too much reality this morning. I'm going to just have to call it there. Thank you for listening.
3: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde.
0: Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we've got mailbag. Whoa, I love it. I love hearing from you, so please do drop us a line. Here's one from Belinda. Dear Rodney Hyde and Kathy Jameson, thank you for your wonderful interview on the OIA request and what the government knew on the 4th of July 2023. I think it's earlier than that. Uh, In the interview you mentioned an OIA request that was raised Oh, the interview was on the 4th of July. Sorry. Uh, An interview an OIA request that was raised shows by batch number. Please show us what went to each vaccination centre in New Zealand. I've tried searching for this on fyi.org.nz and cannot locate it. Are you able to email me a copy of this OIA and the reply to me at gives an email? Well, thank you, Belinda. I'll organise that for you. So nice to hear from you. Terry, great stuff, team. I'm impressed with RCR Diplomacy and interview your subject. Not convinced of Corey's smart city concept that leaves a big hole for public corruption, like we've seen of recent. Keep up the good, honest, independent broadcasts. Give us gives us a little hope. Well, thank you, Terry. From Paul, fantastic interview with Kathy Jamieson, Rodney. Can you please post a transcript or bullet point summary of who knew what when? We need to send this to every politician and overseas news outlets. We need to prompt National Act to start distancing themselves from their ridiculous, unconditional support of Jacinda's ill-informed, if not illegal, COVID response. Thanks for the great work to you and Cathy. Cheers, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Yes, that's underway. Rodney, I've just heard your interview with Cathy Jamieson on 4th of July. Sounds like political dynamite. I wrote Newsroom today in response to Matthew Scott's article on Ayesa Viral's press release on the 4th, re-recruiting med staff. I'm asking MOH again. My unvaxxed doctors and nurses are still unemployed when the mandate was restored last September. This afternoon, I learned from a doctor friend that this continuing mandate is also withdrawn, as from this week. All very interesting. I'll meet VFF folk tomorrow night and see if I can learn more. My son and daughter-in-law are unvaxxed, hence my interest. All power to your elbow. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Wonderful. Just listen to your replay with Kathy Jameson on the OAA Request revealing what the government knew about COVID. Let me know if she still needs help with the summary statement of her AIO findings. Happy to help out. Many thanks in advance. Oh, well, thank you, Anthony. I'll pass that on. Thank you so much. Uh, from Julian, Sandy Adams seems to be a prolific opponent of 15-minute cities in the UK. Her talk to the Glaston. Berry Council was solid. Some links and videos below might be worth exploring as a potential guest. Cheers, Julian. Oh, look at those links. Thank you, Julian. Uh, Your show yesterday was mind-blowing. They knew the vaccine was not effective and not safe six months before they mandated it. It is well overdue time to release the whole Pfizer contract. Ain't that the truth? Uh, Every time you say because of COVID, you need to say because of the government response to COVID, you're quite right. Uh, I do, I should say that. Sometimes it just is a shorthand, isn't it? But you're absolutely right. Everything was a response, the government response, what caused all the problems, not the COVID itself. Let's repeat, because of our overreaching government response to COVID, quite. Claudine, just listening to your interview, Rodney, great interview. So interesting and thought-provoking. I'm really enjoying Reality Check Radio, and I'm so grateful we now have this option, and I've heard many really good interviews and I didn't expect this to be so inspiring. Thank you, Piora Claudine. Claudine, that is so nice. Oh, I got a wee tickle down my spine. Thank you. Uh, get Dr. Michael Johnson back on, Rodney. Very interesting. Want to hear even more. I agree. He was great. P.S. You do not ramble on. You summarise and ask more questions, which gives us more depth and understanding. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you for that. Ah, uh, aren't we blessed? We've got each other. We've got a great country. We're going to have to work for it to keep it. And we are working for it to keep it. And we're going to win. Why? Because we have humanity. We have spirit. We have laughter. We have each other. We have a team. This is Rally Check Radio. Real talk with Rodney Hyde. I want to hear from you. Please, please, please. Inbox at rallycheck.radio. Send me a text 2057. Thank you so much.
5: Our text machine is now live
0: send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057 that's 2057 so get in touch with us now you're on reality check radio it's real talk with rodney Hyde, and i've discovered something over the weekend and that's that i'm another thing i am a turf which is a trans exclusionary
1: radical feminist now I never
0: knew I was a feminist. I never knew that I was a radical. I never realized I was exclusionary, and I realized, never realized that I was being rude to trans people. In fact, I'm none of those things.
1: And when you come across this name-calling, you
0: know there's not an argument behind it because the one thing that I do know about myself is that I'm very reasonable, and I'm happy to be disabused of my understanding of things. In fact, I love it. That's why I've loved this show so much, because I have learned such a lot. And as I've learned more and understood more, I feel more at peace, because I was so confused about what was happening in the world. But then I've been called a climate change denier simply for saying that I didn't think that burning fossil fuels was going to destroy the planet in the next few years or ever. I've been called a conspiracy theorist for simply asking why are we doing this massive shutting down our economy because of a virus that doesn't seem
1: to hurt most people.
0: Indeed, it doesn't seem that much worse than the flu, if it is worse than the flu. I was called a member of, I was called part of a river of filth were going along to protest that people were losing their jobs because they wouldn't take their government medicine. And now I'm a turf, and I understand that I'm a turf because I don't want men dressed up as women going into my girls' toilets and changing rooms, or my wife's, and playing against them in sport. And because I believe that there is a biological difference between men and women, and that a man can never be a woman, and a woman can never be a man. I have nothing but love in my heart for people who find themselves feeling that they need to live differently. In fact, I quite admire it.
1: I've quite enjoyed meeting trans women and
0: trans men in the past. Because it's different, and it's wonderful in a way that people can live differently and challenge us. But no, men aren't going to come into my kids changing sheds, into their toilets.
1: It's not safe. It's not respecting a woman. And a trans woman is a trans woman, not a woman. So
0: we get to what happened over the weekend with Spark, and I just want to revisit it for a moment. So Chanel Lau, he's the guy that incited the, well, was one of the instigators of the shutting down and the violence that we saw with Posey Parker. He put out this thread. This is the Twitter rival that Zuckerberg has set up called Thread, Threaders or Threader, I don't know. Something. He says, dear threaders, can we agree that we won't tolerate turfs on threads? Hmm. They've made the lives of trans people living hell on almost all platforms. Let's not allow their hatred to poison this app, too. Requested with love. Oh my goodness.
1: So we won't tolerate anyone that disagrees with us
0: and thinks that a man can't be a woman. And that somehow in their thinking that and acting on that, they've made the lives of trans people living hell. I've not made anyone's life living hell. Let's not allow their hatred to poison us at, too. I don't hate anyone,
1: actually. And then he says
0: this after wanting to de platform everyone and abusing us with these words and what we're on about, he says, requested with love. And here's the kicker: Spark New Zealand, which I don't know, has received hundreds of millions from the government to connect us all up. Says yes, please, wholeheartedly co-signed. So Spark wants me kicked off threads too. Not that I'm on it, but if I was, they want me kicked off. They're the people that I pay
1: for my. I'm a customer, and they want me kicked off.
0: In fact. When the lady that wrote that was being interviewed by Jack Tame, she said, yeah, she's quite pleased to get rid of us.
1: Doesn't want us as a customer. Okay, fair enough. One New Zealand, that's the old Vodafone, they said, yeah, we don't want them either. Imagine this.
0: One New Zealand, a.k.a. Vodafone, doesn't want my business. Not welcome here. We stand with you, Spark, and anyone else brave enough to call them out. Who's the them? That's me. I'm being called out. Why? Because I think women and men are different. And I believe in women having safe spaces
1: to go where no men can go.
0: Vodafone don't want me. Oh, Two Degrees don't. Two Degrees said, at Two Degrees, we were all about fighting for fear. And that includes supporting diversity in all its forms. We emojis love, love, love. We are proud to carry the rainbow tick and we strive to make our workplaces and stores safe and inclusive no matter who you are, how you identify, or who you love. So they don't want our business either. <laughs> well, <laughs> It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's sort of so mad. Oh, I think there's a difference between a man and a woman. No, I don't think you can change your XY chromosomes to XX and every cell in your body. No, I don't think that's possible. Very sorry about that. Oh, we don't want your business. And of course, where do you go? And here is Spark New Zealand coming back when they're questioned about this. Is there truly their position? Marina Koto Katoa. We stand by our response to Chanel Lal on threads. We will continue to support the rights of trans and non-binary people, and we're not interested in discussing this further. Hmm, that's part of it, isn't it? Call us names and then say we're not interested in discussing or debating it with you. So what rights of trans and non-binary people are they claiming? Is it rights that I don't have? Yes, it is. And it's not rights I want because I respect women. The rights that they're demanding, as I understand it, I can't think what else it could be,
1: is that men who identify as women,
0: it's almost too crazy to say. You go into the ladies' changing room and the girls' toilets and compete in their sports. They don't have the right to do that. That is for women. Transpe- trans people. trans. Women aren't women. Again, I'm not denying a trans woman any any right that they should enjoy. They can live their life to the fullest, and I wish them every happiness. But a man is not allowed in the girls' toilets. So it was going to be no further discussion,
1: and then Spark came out with this. Oh,
0: there's been a bit of debate over the weekend, and we would like to provide more clarity on where we stand. So it's not that they were wrong, it's just that they weren't clear. At Spark, we believe the internet should be an inclusive space for all people, regardless of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or any other factor. Well, I hope you got room there for Christians. I hope you got room there for people who think men and women are different. I hope you got. Room there for people who question mandates, lockdowns. Hmm. Spark continues. We have a very long history of supporting women. Well, good for you. Particularly through improved gender representation. Well, I hope you... Good luck. Yeah, Progression. I don't know what that is. Particularly through progression. What's progression? And by reducing the gender pay gap. We are also... Strong supporters of the LGBTQ plus community. Well, good for you. We recognize there are a wide ranging views on how to create safe spaces in both the online and offline world. And we will continue to live up to our own values and our belief in diversity and inclusion while respecting each person's right to their own view. We know our original post did not reflect this well, and that's something we will learn from we hope that this provides more context and some assurance that we support inclusivity and safe environments for all people. Well, Spark, it doesn't even come close because here's the fundamental problem. You can't be supporting
1: women and supporting men going into their
0: toilets, changing rooms and sports events. Full stop. You can't be supporting women when you're supporting
1: men who violently shut down their discussion and debate, full
0: stop. Sometimes you can't be all cuddly and inclusive because one part of this equation is wanting to shut the other side down And that part of the equation is trying to shut down women. So you're either, Spark, incredibly stupid, totally unaware of what words you're saying, totally confused, or you think that we're stupid. Now,
1: I could well be stupid, but I know this. Supporting women means keeping them safe from predatory
0: men. I'm not saying that trans women are predatory men, but allowing trans women into women's safe spaces
1: opens the door wide open to predatory
0: men. And we oppose that. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rally Check Radio. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening.
3: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde.
0: Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.
3: You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check, reality check, RCR, reality check radio, rational discussion, common sense and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker.
2: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
3: The man who cares so much and whose background is for real. Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get acc They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain, and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.
0: What a show! What a show! Oh, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. The wonderful Sue Kuiti took us over her and her husband's experience with working in the windscreen uh, business, which you just think, do a good job, look after your customers, go the extra mile, you'll do okay. But you're up against it. You're up against the government and you're up against big corporates. And that is what is happening right through the country, everywhere you look small businesses being squeezed. We all love competition. It's what made societies great and made countries prosperous. But there's an issue with government tipping the playing field sometimes just through even well-meaning legislation, although you've got to question even whether it's well-meaning sometimes, putting more and more and more in red tape on small business who can't carry the cost. And so increasingly, we're seeing big franchises and big corporates gobble up uh, smaller businesses, transforming our societies, transforming our lives. With Sue, we saw a microcosm of what's going on. We need to think seriously about this. We need to debate about where we're going. And oh my goodness, Philippa Payne. Oh, 501s, how misinformed was I? I thought I knew what was going on. I just read the headlines, just listened to the talking points of what Prime Minister John Key said. Not the story, not the full story. And my goodness, I've got nothing against Australia, but I'd never live there under those terms. Not if there could be a knock at my door and I'm stuck in a detention camp or my kids are stuck in the detention camp with no right to citizenship. Boy, they don't tell you that. You're on Realty Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us an email, inbox at realtycheck.radio. Send us a text, 2057. Thank you for listening. We'll talk Thursday. Oh,
1: I so love it. Thank you for listening.